If you've got your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be picking things up a little bit later than right after where we left off last week, and so continuing through the Gospel of Mark together this morning with chapter 9, talking this morning about Abel. Right? Abel is a word that has some seriously shifting meaning over the course of our lives. As in it is children, we're able to play outside nonstop from sunrise to sunset and then get up and do it again the next day and the next day and the day after that without ever getting tired, right? As teenagers, then we're able to stay up half the night or, and then stay up half or more of the next day sleeping in, right? But then that ability eventually leaves us. And then in our 20s, we have the freedom that adulthood brings and we're able to make decisions that weren't ours to make before, right? And then in our 30s, right, we're no longer able to stay up late, no longer able to sleep half the day, but we get the ability to injure ourselves significantly while we're asleep, right, which is an amazing ability to have as well. And we could go on, I'm sure, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, just with those of us, 90s, with those of us in this room of things that we're able to do this morning, things that we're not able to do. Right? But as we think about what it means to be able, we know that all of that isn't tied to our age. Some of you are able to do things right now that I could never do at any age or will never be able to do. That's just part of how God has made us, each with different abilities, with different gifts, with different callings on our lives. But when we think about what it means to be able, we would also have to say, if we're honest, that regardless of our age or our interests or our backgrounds or our talents, we all have this one thing in common. We are all limited in what we're able to do. Right? To say Andrew is able, or to say Tony is able, or to say, right, insert your name here, is able, that's not a complete thought because it doesn't tell what it is I'm able to do. It doesn't give the necessary qualifications to that statement because rest assured, there are many things you and I are not able to do. There's only one person about whom that statement can be made without any limitations, without any qualifications. And knowing Jesus, that has been our theme as we continue this series through the Gospel of Mark. Knowing Jesus, we've seen his power, we've seen his authority, his compassion, and his tendency to break down barriers as he calls all people to repent of sin, to believe in him, to receive the forgiveness that he alone can offer as the Messiah and the Son of God. And that continues to be Mark's mission as we come here today to chapter 9. We're a little over halfway through Mark's Gospel. We're going to make our home today in verses 14 through 29, but just to set the stage before we read our passage together this morning, let's think about what's just happened in the chapter or so before our verses today. Peter has boldly confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ that Israel has been waiting for for so long. But then Jesus immediately starts teaching right after that that he's going to have to suffer and that he's going to rise and he's going to die and then he's going to rise again. And Peter, who just said, Jesus, you're the one that all the Old Testament prophecies point to, Peter then turns around and rebukes Jesus for claiming that he's going to fulfill those prophecies perfectly. Right, verse 29 of chapter 8, Peter says, you're the Christ. But then verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Jesus straightens Peter out with a rebuke of his own. And then chapter 9 begins with this magnificent display of the glory of God. We see Peter, James, and John going up onto this mountain with Jesus. And we see Jesus transfigured, exalted in glory with a voice from the cloud that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen 
to him. And we think of our lives as Christians, our journey in the Christian life. One of the things we talk about sometimes is mountaintop experiences in our lives. Moments maybe it's at a camp or a conference or in the course of life where we experience the presence of God, the power of God in a particularly powerful way. But I can assure you that none of those compare with what Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain. Right, we'll read that this week in our readings if you're following along with the reading plan. And you'll see there this picture of Jesus that's beyond description, his power, and his glory. And that's where we come, though, to our passage for today, where the radiant, glorious Son of God, who's sovereign over all things, comes face to face with the evil and darkness that still pervade our fallen world. So let's read together Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house... His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Father, this morning as we spend these next few moments looking together at this passage, Lord, looking together at your word, this event that happened in the life of Jesus, we pray that you would do this morning in our hearts and in our lives what only you are able to do. Lord, that you would give faith, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen faith where doubts are invading, Lord, that you would restore joy where sorrow is overcoming, God. We pray that you would do what you are able to do through this passage this morning, what you intend to do through it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus is able. That is reality. It's the story, and we're going to look at it this morning. It commands from us a singular response, right? One thing that we should do because we know that Jesus is able, and we see in this passage two reasons why we should respond in that way, right? So one response Two reasons. First, the response that we should have to Jesus is we should trust the one who is able. Trust Jesus. 
Back to the beginning of the passage, the beginning of the story, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down the mountain where Jesus has just been transfigured before their very eyes. And when they come to the rest of the disciples, they see this great crowd gathering around them. Usually that's not a good sign that things are going well. Imagine you are going to visit with some friends for what you think is a small gathering, just a few people you know, and you get there and the whole driveway is filled with cars that you don't recognize and all these people are flooding out that you've never seen before, right? That's not a good feeling. Or imagine you return home after a long day at work or maybe a long trip away or something and you get home, turn in your driveway and there are a bunch of cars everywhere in your driveway and then you walk up and there's all these people standing on your porch and not only are they standing there, they're arguing as you walk up, right? That's not a good sign. That's not something that we would look forward to. And that's what's happening is Jesus and Peter, James, and John walk up here. Crowd is around the disciples. Scribes are arguing with them. And the scene I'm picturing here is like a movie where the soundtrack comes to this screeching halt as all of a sudden all eyes turn to Jesus as they see him approaching. Right? And they're so amazed at the sight of Jesus as they run up to him and they greet him. And we aren't told exactly why it is they're amazed Right? Maybe there's still some residual radiance with Jesus here at this point, but more likely it's the reputation that precedes Jesus by this point in his life and in his ministry. Because Jesus is definitely the one they're looking for, as we learn pretty quickly in this passage. So they run together to meet Jesus, amazed by his presence, and Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? In verse 17, then from this great crowd of people, one voice answers him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So we see immediately that there's a problem here in this story. This child is possessed by this spirit, and it won't allow him to speak, but it gets worse than that. The spirit also, it says, seizes him. It throws him on the ground, causes him to foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, become rigid. This is a desperate situation. I can't imagine the fear and the anger the grief, the confusion of the father in this story, in this moment. You can hear it in the way he relates to Jesus about what Jesus had just missed moments before. He says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. There's this desperation there, this hopelessness. They were not able. Right? I think it seems likely in this story that this wasn't the first course of treatment this father had pursued for his son. Seems to have been going on a while, and the father seems very concerned about his son. He seems to love his son well, and so I don't think probably tracking down Jesus traveling around with the reputation that he has for miraculous signs is as great of an opportunity as that was, that probably wasn't the first thing that he had tried to do. He'd already tried everything in his power to help his son. Now Jesus' disciples, they've tried everything in their power to help his son. But they were not able. Go back to verse 17, though, where the father began talking. And what he says there is very specific. He speaks directly to Jesus and only to Jesus. Right? Teacher, I brought my son to you. He knew he couldn't do anything else for his son on his own, and so he brought him to Jesus because he had this hopelessly sick son. He's seized by this unclean spirit. But he knew enough about Jesus to know that Jesus was able to help. And so in the face of his own inability, he believed Jesus was able to help his son. So he brings his son to Jesus. He trusted 
Jesus, trusted that he was able to help. And the crowd and this father, I think in this story, they show us a perfect picture of the same imperfect faith that Jesus commands from each of us. This crowd, they look at Jesus with amazement. They run to him. They greet him. They're excited to see what Jesus would do. And there are times in our lives when that's what our faith looks like as well, right? When life is going well, we feel the power of the presence of Jesus. We're eager to spend more and more time with Jesus. And that is a great place for us to be. And I hope it's where you are this morning. With a group of people this size, sometimes some of us, I'm sure, are finding ourselves this morning, like the people, the man, the father in the midst of the crowd. People around us exuberantly singing about what we believe, the salvation that we have. But you still feel this morning the crushing weight of desperation or depression, the pain of grief, concern for a loved one, the powerful pull of sin in your heart, the anxiety of new things, unknown things that are coming up ahead. Maybe it's a terrifying diagnosis or financial burdens, whatever it is, the reality is many of you are sitting here this morning bearing a weight that you are not able to sustain. And as you see and hear Jesus in his word this morning, I encourage you to trust in the one who is able. Like the father in this story, bring your problem, bring your trouble to Jesus. Too many times we try to just tough it out on our own. We try to walk through things on our own. God never intended for us to endure alone. He's given us his son and given us his spirit so that we would always have with us one who is able to bear the burdens that weigh us down. But we're too busy trying to blend in with the crowd, trying to convince ourselves and everyone around us that we've got it all together. And so we won't even admit that we're not okay. And part of the picture of faith that we see with this father is a willingness to admit his need. He's past the point of caring what this crowd will think about his son's issues or what they're going to say about his family. He's past the point of pseudo-strength that appears to have it all together. And so he cries out one voice from this great crowd of people, Teacher, I brought my son to you. Trust the one who's able. There's room in the heart that trusts Jesus for both amazement and desperation. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that both are present where faith is found because it's the heart that is amazed by the powerful presence of Jesus that comes to him in our moments of deepest desperation. When your heart's grown cold toward Jesus and gospel things, you're walking away from Jesus, your first step when trouble comes won't be toward Jesus either. Trust the one who is able. Trust Jesus. That's the response that Jesus requires of us. One response for every single one of us in this room as we come face to face with Jesus in this story. How should we respond? Trust the one who is able. Two reasons that we should trust Jesus, we see though, as we continue in the story. First reason, Jesus cares about your problem. As the story continues to unfold, the father tells Jesus what's going on, but then Jesus speaks not to the father, but it says he speaks to them to the disciples, to the crowd that's gathered around. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is directly addressing the very last thing the father had said to him in verse 18. The disciples, they were not able to help. Why? There was a failure of faith a failure to trust Jesus. And beyond this immediate situation we're reading here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus was diagnosing the biggest problem that each of us face in our lives, and it is our faithlessness, our failure to trust Jesus. 
We say we believe Jesus, and we do, but the New Testament makes it very clear there's a faith that saves and there's a faith that lacks the true essence of belief. To go back to the analogy you've probably heard before, it's the difference between saying you believe that that pew you're sitting in will actually hold you and then actually sitting down in that pew. It's the difference between knowing who Jesus is, which the evil spirit seizing this boy knew, and actually personally, deeply knowing Jesus for yourself. We know that, though, that even after we've experienced redemption, the salvation Jesus offers, we still can see faithlessness creeping in to our hearts. We trust Jesus, we say we trust him, but there's still the temptation to handle things on our own for whatever reason. So if we think of Jesus as an insurance policy instead of the sovereign king of the universe, right? he's there when we really need him, or when we realize that we really need him. Right? And like our insurance company, we're afraid that Jesus is going to raise our premiums if we actually have to make a claim on his grace and on his power. And so instead of bringing our problems to Jesus like the Father in this story and laying them before him with open hands, we just try to get by to survive and let him help every now and then. That's a really bad life strategy for a number of reasons. Maybe the biggest one being what we see in this passage is Jesus actually cares for you. He actually cares about your problems. Jesus rebukes the lack of faith in the crowd before him, but their faithlessness doesn't limit his faithfulness. He says, bring the boy to me. And that's what they did. But when the spirit seizing the boy saw Jesus, it immediately sent him into this violent seizure. And at this point, we're thinking, Jesus, just make it stop, right, as we read this. Do something, Jesus, because we kind of take these miraculous healings and stories for granted. Of course, Jesus is going to cast out the evil spirit. We read the Gospels like this assembly line healing ministry where Jesus is just passing out healing to everybody who walks by. But here this boy is in this story, having this violent seizure, rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus turns to his father and asks the father a question that seems to have very little to do with the situation at hand. But he asks him, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus, why does it matter how long it's been happening? Jesus, you're able to fix this, but in the midst of this crowd pressing in on him, Jesus takes the time to make an individual connection, to make a personal connection with this father. He's going to help the boy, but first he sees this father and he sees his pain, he sees his struggle, and so he asks a question of the father. He listens to the father. He hears what the father is going through. Listening kind of seems to be a lost art. Today, people don't really listen to each other at all. Because we either have our opinion already formed and solidified to the point we'll listen to no evidence to the contrary, or we're just waiting for our turn to talk, or we're just so absorbed in what we're doing that we can't possibly take the time to set our phones down and have a real conversation with the people in front of us. And yet, we all know how good it feels when somebody takes the time to actually listen to our struggle, to our sorrows, to our stuff. We desperately want to be seen and heard because when we are, we know somebody cares for us. That's what Jesus does. He knows he's going to fix the obvious problem that everybody sees here, but he takes the opportunity to hear what this father has on his heart, to get the root of what's going on here. And the father answers him and tells him it's been going on from childhood, right? And the spirit has cast my son into fire and water, trying to destroy him, trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, please 
have compassion on us and help us, right? This man, we see he's terrified for his child's life. The Spirit is trying to destroy him, and he pleads with Jesus, do what he can to help. Right, but notice the change here. It says, have compassion on us. Help us. The Father knows at this point that Jesus isn't just here to help his son, but he's here to help him as well. Verse 23, then Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And again, we see the tension here between this man's faith that Jesus can help and the uncertainty and the doubt that creeps into our hearts in this fallen world. And Jesus calls out this man's lack of faith while offering an encouragement to keep trusting, to keep fighting for faith. He tells him all things are possible for one who believes. That's all this father needed to hear. And he cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're one that underlines or highlights in your Bible, right, there's the statement in this passage for you to underline. I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sum up the rhythm of Christian discipleship, and I don't know what does. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you are the Christ, the Messiah who came to rescue me from sin, to set me free, to give me victory over death, and life that is abundant and eternal. Jesus, I believe it, that you've done it, and it's settled, it's finished, but Jesus, I need your help to keep believing it because there's an enemy that seeks to destroy us because our flesh wages war against the Spirit, and temptation still strikes us because sometimes all we can see is this mountain of a problem that is right in front of us. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Oddly enough, that in itself is a statement of faith. You don't ask somebody to help you unless you trust that they're able to help you, that they can help you, that they will help you, unless you trust that they care about you and what you're going through. I believe, help my unbelief. Trust the one who is able. First reason, because Jesus cares about your problem personally, intensely, compassionately cares about what you're going through this very moment. Second reason, to trust Jesus is Jesus commands all things. Jesus commands all things. He cares about what you're going through. The things that seem big, the things that seem small, the things that are visible to everybody else around you, and the things that nobody else will ever see. The spirit that's casting you on the ground to destroy you, and the anxiety and grief that you carry for your loved ones. And in this intimate moment between Jesus and his father, Jesus sees the crowd running together once again, and he rebukes this unclean spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Full, forever freedom for this boy is what Jesus commands. Verse 26 reveals the power of Jesus' words. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. This unclean spirit that had been ravaging this boy for years fled at the word of Jesus. He commands all things. That includes every power, every force, every spirit, or anything that you can imagine. As the sovereign king of the universe, there is not a single threat to you or to your family that Jesus will not eventually crush. Some of you know pain and sorrow and grief that I will never know, and yet you've seen Jesus' faithfulness to you in the midst of that pain, how he never left you, how he saw you through it. And from the beginning of this story, we've seen this underlying assumption in the heart of this father that Jesus is able, that he can help. The question is, how would he help as we read it? 
would he ultimately dispatch this unclean spirit and free the boy from its grasp? At right, this point in the story, we see the answer clearly. And everybody who was in that crowd saw the answer clearly. Jesus is able. No caveats, no exceptions. Jesus is able. He commands all things, every power. Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That is the same Jesus who cares deeply for you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So whatever it is that is stealing your joy this morning and fueling your anxious thoughts, Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus is better than that. Do you believe that? I do, but here's what else I know. I'm going to need Jesus' help to believe it for another second, another day, another month, another year. That's the depth of my inability. If it depends upon me to sustain my faith in the midst of success or failure, then I'm in big trouble. The good news is it isn't up to me. Because when I say Jesus commands all things, yes, that includes every power or every problem we might face, but it also includes something else. It includes all things, right? All means all. Jesus doesn't just command everything around us. He doesn't just command everything that's outside of us. He also commands our hearts. Look what happens after Jesus commands the Spirit to leave the boy. Verse 28, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the house, and they've got some privacy now, and the disciples have a question for Jesus probably a little bit embarrassed about their own inability to cast out this spirit. And they ask him, why could we not cast it out, Jesus? Why were we unable to do what you were able to do with ease? Why couldn't we accomplish what you've already commissioned us to do? And Jesus gives them this answer that at first seems a little bit cryptic to us, but I don't think it's necessarily all that complex once we see it in the context of this passage. Jesus tells them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Right? Like I said, at first it seems a little confusing because the father comes to Jesus and asks him, right, what can you do? And what does Jesus tell the father is necessary for his son to be set free? Faith. And he tells the father, believe. Now he tells his disciples what's necessary for you to cast out this spirit? Prayer. Right? So which is it, Jesus? Is it faith or is it prayer? And that's a good question for us to ask as we read this passage. But what Jesus is addressing here in verse 29 is ultimately the same thing he was addressing back in verse 23. It was the heart of the people standing in front of him. And just as he did with the Father, he calls his disciples to trust him. There's no place in our lives where the health of our faith is more visible to us than in our prayer life or lack thereof. And nobody sees you praying. Nobody's going to know whether you prayed or not, or for how long, or how intensely. And when life gets going, it gets busy, you're going to be tempted to pray less rather than pray more, because things get busy, and pressures mount. The to-do list is perpetually growing, and we begin to believe the lie that we can either do something about the problems that are in front of us, or we can take time to pray about those problems. You see this in criticisms of people who respond to disasters or tragic events in the news um, by saying they're sending thoughts and prayers for those involved. 
There's a criticism that we shouldn't just send thoughts and prayers, right? But we should actually do something for those who are impacted by that disaster. Sometimes I think if we're honest, that criticism is deserved because it can be easier to say, I'll pray for you, than it is sometimes to actually give our time and our effort to help make things better. But we also feed into this as Christians when we say things like, well, all we can do now is pray. We say it, though, with this defeatist attitude, right? Like we're waving the white flag of surrender. We treat prayer like it's a last resort. Like do everything you can. Well, none of that worked. So I guess basically now all that's left is we'll pray it works out. But if everything we've learned about Jesus from this passage and the gospel of Mark is true, then that is not the right approach to prayer. Right? Prayer is not an alternative to action. If Jesus is able to do all things, and if he cares about all our problems, then prayer is not a last resort. It's not a half-court heave at the buzzer. It's the best shot that we have. It's the most effective action that we can take. Not the least, because anything we can do in our own strength and our own ability is going to be limited in scope. It's going to be temporary in nature. But Jesus can step in and say things like, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. His power is unlimited. His authority is boundless. And that seems better to me than what I can do on my own. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples and saying to us in verse 29. Just bring it to me in prayer. Trust the one who is able. Because yes, our prayer lives reveal the health of our faith in Jesus, but prayer also works to strengthen our faith. Because prayer expresses our dependence on the one who gave us that faith in the first place. The one who commands our hearts to believe in the first place. The one who calls us out of darkness into the light, from death into life everlasting. Jesus commands all things. Every power every heart, and he calls us to trust him. So that's our response to Jesus this morning. Trust in the one who is able, because he cares about your problems, because he commands all things. That may be something that you need to do today for the first time. Place your faith in Jesus. Repent, turn from your sin, from living for yourself and in your own ability, and trust the one who's able to do all things, to forgive you and to change you give you hope, to give you a future. Jesus is able to do that for you this morning. And if you need to know more about that, then you can come talk to me in a moment as we sing or talk to Tony or somebody else here that you trust about following Jesus. But most of you are here today, this morning, because you already believe in Jesus. And like the father in this story, though, our faith is frail. I believe, help my unbelief. And that's where you find yourself this morning. I'd ask you the same question this passage has already asked of me. How is your prayer life? Are you scraping by in your own strength or your own power when the one who has all power and all authority sits at the right hand of God the Father ready to hear your cry? Are you believing the lie that strength means never asking for help, never admitting your need? I believe, help my unbelief. The one who brought your sin, deadened heart to life, promises to do what he's, guarantees that he will do what he has promised. He'll finish what he has started. And so whatever it is, whatever sin it is, whatever struggle it is, whatever it is you're wrestling with this very second, 
Jesus is able. It's not just a glib little pep talk I'm up here giving. It's the reality that stands at the center of the universe. Jesus is able. He is over all things, commands all things, and he cares for you. You can trust him.